Thank you very much indeed for agreeing to do this podcast. I'm very grateful, especially as I think this topic is so fascinating. Please can I start by introducing you. First of all, the author of the paper we're discussing, Professor Bernard Smith from Zurich, whose paper is in this July issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. Professor Gosby from Seattle, who's a well-known expert in the field of periodontal independent seizures, has written a commentary that's accompanying it. I'm very grateful to you indeed for agreeing to discuss both the paper and the wider implications. The first thing is to say, isn't it, that the, the field has moved on tremendously in the last few years. So there's been enormous increased understanding of both periodontal independency and related conditions. Would you like to comment on that, perhaps to start with, Sid? Well, absolutely. I think that uh, you know the discovery of the biochemical markers several years ago, followed by the establishment of the gene responsible for the abnormality, has absolutely changed the way that we should be thinking about how to evaluate uh, young children with intractable seizures. And hopefully, more clinicians will be thinking about pyridoxine dependency as well as uh, PNPO as etiologies, so that these conditions can be treated more promptly and aggressively and diagnosed with expertise. One of the things you mentioned that all the textbooks say, of course, is intractability, isn't it? Do you think they are all intractable? Well, I think that's an excellent point. We don't really know the natural history necessarily of all the phenotypes, so there uh, could certainly be some phenotypes that are not necessarily intractable. There certainly have been examples of some babies who have responded uh, for at least a while to anticonvulsants before management becomes more challenging. So it's certainly conceivable that there may be less severe phenotypes. Bernard, do you want to comment on that? Yes, this is also my feeling that some of these patients respond in part on phenobarbital and not completely, but seizures sometimes improved or were stopped for a few hours or maybe a few days, but then they reoccur. Um, so probably there is a response on, uh, on anticonvulsive drugs, not uh, completely, but there's a reaction. Yes. One thing from your work has been an attempt to try and identify the clinical presentation so that clinicians will think of the condition. Because one of the big problems has been a failure to consider the diagnosis and delayed treatment. Would you like to discuss the presenting features? Should we, should we talk about the ones that should give one a clue? We've mentioned it in often failure to respond to standard anticonvulsants. But um, what other ones do you feel we should now be particularly looking out for that should make someone think, oh, is it periodontal independency? Yes, I think that these uh, long-lasting and frequent myoclonic or multifocal and uh, generalized myoclonic jerks, which are intermixed with tonic symptoms, spasms, grimacing, and abnormal eye movements, and the irritability is something which should alert. Nabut has already described these symptoms, and we saw these symptoms in almost all patients. And we looked in our video database, and we found such mixed seizures only in three other patients. One of these patients was a patient with a metabolic disease and one with a developmental defect and one with an unknown etiology. So I think it is a more or less a rare combination of symptoms, and this should alert. In addition, I think abnormal eye movements and grimacing is also something which we don't observe so frequently in neonates. It occurs in other diseases, but not so often. These symptoms should also alert. Myoclonic jerks are something which we uh, see more frequently, but in most neonates we saw it uh, only during sleep and we saw it only rare 
also a few myoclonic jerks. Patients with very frequent myoclonic jerks are much rarer, and here we saw the symptoms only in four abstinence syndrome, which is, uh, could probably a differential diagnosis um, uh, for pyridoxine-dependent epilepsy. And we saw it also in two metabolic patients. This, I think, are the paroxysmal symptoms we saw in our patients. So would you like to comment as well on that? Well, I think the wealth of clinical symptoms uh, is quite fascinating that, that's been described in this paper. And, you know, it brings up some of the classic concepts that Ms. Rahi and Callaway wrote about a couple decades ago on their seminal work on neonatal seizures where a number of uh, encephalopathic newborns had clinical events that did not necessarily have an electrographic signature. Those events still went by the term seizure, but very likely did not have an epileptic pathophysiology. And I think you know the work that uh, Professor Schmidt and his colleagues have presented suggests that not all of these involuntary movements that children with pyridoxine-dependent epilepsy have are necessarily epileptic in origin, and they may be coming from uh, subcortical or brainstem areas as opposed to from the cortex. And I think that's a very interesting part of this work that you know, needs further exploration. Yes, do you want to comment on that, Bernard, as well? I agree, but I'm not completely sure if it is really non-epileptic. Uh, probably it is. But, uh, it is possible that some of these phenomenons are created in the depths of the brain and don't come up to the surface, e.g. In favor of this, of an epileptic background, is that we saw such electroclinical seizures, which means that uh, clinical symptoms were associated with an ictal discharge in EEG, out of an episode in which myoclonic jerks and abnormal behavior and grimacing occur without change in EEG. So there seems to be a fluent passage sometimes between such phenomenon, but I'm not sure. On the other side, we, we know from Peter Clayton that B6 is a required enzyme in the biosynthesis of dopamine and serotonin, and uh, his description of patients with impaired dopaminergic transmissions are very similar to, to what we see in our patients, abnormal eye movements, myoclonic jerks, plexospasms, oral facial dystonia, irritability, and startle responses, all things what we see. In my opinion, we have not a good idea what is the pathophysiology, how seizures were generated in patients with pyridoxine-dependent epilepsy. There is uh, some hint that neurotransmitter metabolism is disturbed, and it is conceivable that abnormal neurotransmetabolism produced such epileptic and non-epileptic symptoms, and maybe there is a fluent passage between these two phenomenons. I don't know. I think further research will possibly clarify this point. What about the EEG findings? One of the unique things about your study is that it's one of the first electroclinical studies of, of the neonatal seizures, where all the others mainly depended on retrospective reporting of what the seizures looked like, and of course that may not always be accurate. But the EEG clearly is very helpful, isn't it? One of the things that was unusual, unexpected, was the, the fact the EEG could be normal, wasn't it, even in a very sick baby who was very encephalopathic? Yeah, we didn't find any typical ictal or interictal EEG. I think most of the pediatricians or neuropediatricians have the engram that patients with spiridoxine-dependent epilepsy or pyridoxine phosphate oxidase deficiency might have a birth suppression in EEG. 
we saw the depression burst only in one patient, and in this patient we saw this pattern half an hour after pyridoxine and after hemicolectomy because of necrotizing enterocolitis. And I think these patients have a lot of reasons to have a burst suppression and not only pyridoxine-dependent epilepsy. What we saw in our patient is sometimes intermittent suppression of activity, but according to the definition of birth suppression, which means that this pattern persists during sleep and wakefulness, uh, we didn't observe uh, suppression burst in uh, none of our patients. Also, other symptoms are described in the literature. Hypsarrhythmia, for example, which we never see. We saw multifocal spike waves, but we also saw normal EEG before administration of pyridoxine and also during the Vistrol trial we saw normal EEGs. So I think everything seems possible and in the same patient uh, before treatment we saw different forms of abnormalities and also normal EEGs. Um, that's why I think a typical interictal EEG we will not find in these patients. And the same is for the ictal pattern. Uh, we performed several long-term video EGs in our patients before we made the diagnosis, and ictal discharges were more or less rare events in these patients. And in those where we registered such ictal events, they mostly have a focal onset, but even in the same patient, this focal onset showed different morphologies and different localizations. Maybe in patients beyond the neonatal age, this is a more unique pattern, but in our cohort, uh, the ictal pattern was very different and not unique and not a typical finding uh, and not a typical pattern. We can tell this is from pyridoxine or pyridoxine phosphatoxidase deficiency. I think what's so instructive about uh, these findings is that, you know, hopefully over time when people learn of these results, there will no longer be the tendency to be performing interictal EEGs and administering pyridoxine randomly during an EEG just to see what happens because clearly that's not going to be demonstrating uh, very much of anything, uh, you know, given what Professor Schmidt and his colleagues have demonstrated. Moving on now to um, the other presenting features, many of these seem to mislead and mean that clinicians don't always think of the diagnosis as quickly as we'd like to. Shall we discuss some of those now? You commented on that particularly in, in your commentary. Sure. Well, I think that the fact that some of these babies mimic those infants with you know, neonatal encephalopathy due to you know, hypoxia, ischemia, or infection can certainly confound the diagnosis. The fact that they may have some acid-base abnormalities, uh, low APGAR scores, you know, meconium standing, things of that nature, certainly leads the neonatologist and, and the neurologist to other etiologies rather quickly. So you know, I think we need to broaden our scope when we see babies like this now and, and think about inborn errors of metabolism as part of the differential. Yes, as well as initial clinical features resembling um, hypoxic ischemic problems or then the baby just looking very ill and septic and shut down and shocked. There can also be, be uh, imaging features that mislead, can't there? Yes. Uh, such as bleeding. Do, do you want to right. on that? There have been uh, instances of uh, small amounts of hemorrhage, but then along similar lines, there can also be brain dysgenesis that uh, is noted on, on MR that would also lead someone down a, a different diagnostic pathway uh, rather than an inborn error of metabolism. If uh, one were to see an abnormal corpus callosum, a posterior fossa, uh, malformation, possibly hydrocephalus, uh, all of which have been described at various times in patients with pyridoxine dependency. I know of a recent child, in fact, who had antenatal hydrocephalus and then presented with seizures. 
the diagnosis that, that obviously you know, it wasn't immediately obvious that it was due to uh, periodontal dependency. Uh, so that comes on to, to the question of treatment of neonatal seizures, perhaps in general. And I know that you, you've discussed that in, in many publications in the past. Would you like to discuss it now, uh, particularly in light of these findings? Sure. Well, I think that you know if we are seeing a neonate with encephalopathy and seizures and it's not readily apparent uh, what the cause might be or the management appears to be uh, not very successful after a short period of time, I think one needs to jump in rather quickly with therapy with pyridoxine uh, and possibly folinic acid or pyridoxal phosphate if one's hospital has that readily available to try and get better control. And then at the same time, one could also be collecting uh, urine and blood and possibly spinal fluid for metabolic studies to try and hone in on a diagnosis and then uh, consequently then um, bank DNA so that uh, molecular studies could then be done to uh, confirm the diagnosis uh, once biochemical uh, confirmation has occurred or a good clinical confirmation has, has occurred. You've also commented in the past about neonates who don't always respond immediately to treatment. Right, and I, I think that now that the folinic acid story has emerged, you know, one wonders if those infants uh, previously described may have uh, responded to a combination of pyridoxine and folinic acid. It's, it's hard to say. Bernard, do you want to comment on that? No, more or less, I would say it's the same. The problem with pyridoxal phyphosate is that it is not a licensed drug, and the recommendations to administer this drug as first-line drug instead of pyridoxine makes sense, but is not easily could not be easily done in our hospital because it is not a licensed drug and not really available. But I would recommend uh, to think on this uh, very quickly if pyridoxine uh, has no effect, and then we would administer four times 10 milligram per kilogram, and if there's a partial response, we would increase the dose, but as a second line or third line track first. Do you have a policy about folinic acid as well? I confess we have tried it a few times in patients which were track refractory, but we have not regularly to use it. We have used it a few times so over the last year, I would say, and we've not diagnosed a patient uh, who has responded to it. I do have some older patients with pyridoxine dependency who have molecular confirmation of the disease, uh, and I've added folinic acid to their regimen just to see if there might be some benefit as far as their behavior and development would be concerned. These are individuals who are uh, in their teens or even uh, young adults. And to be honest, uh, a couple of months worth of folinic acid really did not improve their outcomes. Uh, so we've just gone back to their chronic uh, pyridoxine regimen. But it may very well have other positive effects, you know, if given early on in life when you know development is so critical. And certainly, I mean, uh, well, there's a very interesting case recently published by Keith Highland and colleagues describing a child with neonatal seizures responded to phenobarbital and then recurred later on who was sent in for a surgical workup, and as part of that, the CSF found the, the peak and then treated with folinic acid. Yes. The child very nearly ended up going towards a surgical treatment if they, <laughs> they hadn't looked for the peak in the CSF first. The other thing that's interesting, isn't it, is that although most of the cases now do relate to a problem in the antiquity gene, there are a few with the typical clinical features but where you cannot find evidence of an antiquity deficiency, aren't there? And I think one of your cases, Bernard, was in that category, wasn't it? 
Yes, that's true. That's why I, I would propose to be a little bit critical with the biochemical results. In such cases where the biochemical results are positive, that's fine, and you should go on, and you are on the right way. But you should not skip the diagnosis if the biochemical results are negative. I think in these patients, the clinical visceral trial is still uh, this what is necessary to uh, show that if, if a pyridoxine-dependent epilepsy is a problem of the child. Our case, too, is such a patient. Pipicolic acid was negative, alpha ASA was negative, and the genetic testing was negative. But when we withdraw the drug at the age of 14 months, after eight days, this child showed the typical symptoms of sleeplessness, of frequent awakening, of frightened expression, of crying, and probably also of visual symptoms with hallucinations. This was a little bit difficult at this age, but she repeatedly showed episodes pointing to something imaginary in the distance, and the parents had the feeling that she has visual hallucinations. So, and these things immediately stopped when you administer again pyridoxine. The child fell asleep for 12 hours, and after this, this was a normal child again. So I'm sure that is pyridoxine-dependent epilepsy. You've had some patients as well, you felt, haven't you, that didn't map? Absolutely. But to be honest, those patients, to my recollection, have never had their pyridoxine withdrawn due to the wishes of, of the parents. So one has to wonder if they are truly pyridoxine dependent or whether the epilepsy that they had early on was pyridoxine responsive due to some other unknown mechanism that was transient and the pyridoxine was clearly necessary at the time of the seizures but may no longer be necessary as a lifelong vitamin supplement. Yes. I mean, I've, I've certainly seen a sibling pair, in fact, who, who presented with early neonatal uh, classical seizures and, and that had a classical course as well, uh, who uh, both had positive withdrawal studies, but in fact didn't map to the gene. So I, I agree completely that while the biochemistry is very important, it's not the only way of making a diagnosis. Yes. I, I would agree. Unfortunately, we've now come to the end of our podcast time. Thank you both very much. This has been a fascinating discussion, which I've thoroughly enjoyed being part of. Unfortunately, we've now come to the end of our podcast time. Thank you very much. This has been a fascinating discussion, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. I hope everyone listening to it will also get more out of reading the article. Just to remind you, it's Schmidt et al., Seizures and Paroxysmal Events, Symptoms Pointing to the Diagnosis of Pyridoxine-Dependent Epilepsy, and pyridoxine phosphate oxidase deficiency is coming out as an e-paper in the July issue of the journal this year, 2010.